Welcome back to Road to Desert Rain, Dispatches from the Verge. Today, David and I jump into the topic of pain, emotional and physical, and how that um, touches the human experience uh, across um, the entire board. Everyone experiences pain and just sort of how do we deal with it? How do we be empathetic of others as they're walking through it? And we explore that topic. But before we get into that, thank you to Diego at Recording Moving Studios. He does all the editing and sound engineering. Thank you to Jacob Nedia from Monk Drums. That's what you hear in the background. Uh, Once again, thank you to Tiffany Davis can find her work at tmdfineart.com and if you're interested in learning more about desert rain community check out theruin.com also you can find more dispatches from the verge and our other series road to desert rain at drcrpod.com please if you enjoy what you're hearing tell a friend either word of mouth or social media is extremely helpful for us we appreciate you and let's get into it. Welcome to Dispatches from the Verge, uh, brought to you by Desert Rain Community Radio. Mr. David Morrison, how are you doing this morning? I'm a little sleepy, but I'm here, present, yeah, Mr. I'm, Mason. I'm a little a little foggy, as that uh, intro would, would prove. Um, today, we want to talk about something that's connected uh, basically universally to the human condition, uh, and that's pain. All right. Yay, uh, pain. <laughs> yay. Get some. Um, and, you know, I, I know we've talked about it sort of in a general way with specific topics regarding uh, some of your surgeries and um, I think the reconnaissance of death episode mm, yeah. um, with your – the. Uh, kidney shutting down and, and all that stuff you went through a decade ago. Yeah. But how we want to, I think how we want to sort of look at it today is is specifically those types of pain in general, but sort of, you know, because we're human, we're going to experience pain. Right. Um, and so, so I guess sort of just to lead us off, what, how do you, from a, um, not a spiritual perspective, but just as part of life, how do you see pain being connected on our sort of our um, day-to-day going through the this thing we called life, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think it's a major presence in the life of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, from the violence that we see every day, the machines of violence, machinery of of pain. Um, uh, why do people do stupid things? It's because they, you know, there's, there's traumas. Mm. You know, you'll see a, 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 a very successful, wealthy individual who built a company and, and then they lose it all because they expose themselves. Mm. And, and you know, on a rational level, you're, you know, how stupid, how could right. they, they how do would, this? How would anyone, why would anyone do that? And it's, it's not rational. They, mm-hmm. They've sexualized their traumas from childhood probably or, and, and have not, you know, they don't, they're not even aware that they're doing that. It doesn't exempt them 
right the behavior but the, it's it kind of gives an answer to of course it's not a rational reasonable thing that makes sense uh, and so there's a lot of deeper things going on. So we all have these deeper things where we're really responding to pain, trauma. And, and I, you know, and I'm not a therapist, by the way. Yeah, that's so a good that's wanna, a good caveat yeah. for us. <laughs> Neither one of us are licensed professional. Yeah, I just I'm somebody that has experienced the human condition, mm-hmm. and so yeah, I'm not a therapist, nor a theologian, nor the son of one. Uh, you just play one on, on yeah, a movie on a podcast. <laughs> So, but I've experienced pain and I've been very familiar with it, uh, mm-hmm. dealing with it in a spiritual sense, uh, emotionally and physically. And so I could share from that experience. Yeah. And I think that's, that's sort of, I mean, I do want to talk about just the general nature of pain for a little bit more, but that, you know, the, the bulk of this podcast, uh, the idea is to, what do we do with that pain? Yeah, right? Like, how do we walk through it? How do we um, not necessarily make it go away? No. But that's sometimes out of our hands. Yeah, exactly. Um, but how do we live live with pain, whether it's a, a short-term situation or, you know, some people, gentlemen I know, you know, has, has had chronic pain for 30-plus years, you know, and he, and he yeah. finds, uh, finds a way to walk through that. But I guess one, one thing I would like to, to maybe delve into just a little bit at the beginning is when – an individual is experiencing pain. It can be the most distracting slash important thing in that person's consciousness. Yeah. And it's almost one of those things where you can empathize with someone else feeling pain, but you can never really step into their shoes in the sense of feeling the same pain in that moment. Right. Because even with death, you know, even with death, everyone sort of processes that in a different way. And so what 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 have been your experiences um, trying to relate or connect when you see someone else experiencing whether, you know, and it doesn't matter if it's physical or emotional pain, what are, what are some of the things you try to step into in those moments? Because you can't, you know, the, oh, it'll be better. Yeah, no. It's like, okay, thanks. It may not be better, yeah. <laughs> right. You might become better through it, but mm. it's not. No, yeah, so coming up with answers for someone that's in pain is the first step to not do that. Mm-hmm. That's a big mistake, and that's what most people want to do. I want to fix it mm-hmm. uh, because it reminds me of my own pain, and so I don't mm-hmm. want to see any pain. So, that, so when you approach it through that, you cause greater problems. And a lot of religious practitioners and spiritual people do that. Uh, what they're really doing is they're, you know, I think we've talked about it, uh, uh, distracting themselves or bypassing their own. Mm. Yeah, we've talked about the bypassing. Yeah, repressing their own pain with happy thoughts. And, uh, you know, they're really just pain phobic and what, what you'd call negative emotion phobic, mm. anger phobic people. And so a lot of times those people will try to fix other people's pain not because of empathy, but because uh, they're trying to bypass their their own pain. And so, yeah, so talking to someone as if you have some sort of an answer for them is, uh, is, is, a, is a big mistake, you know. Uh, but empathy is, is, is found a lot of times in just silence and being present to that person mm. uh, and just keeping your, your mouth shut. Um, 
sometimes it's good to tell, you know, I've gone through very difficult things and, and people that know me, you know, that I trust have, would say, you know, you're going to get through this, a very simple thing. Um, and, and that meant a lot. So it was because they said it out of a place of empathy, not out of a place of trying to fix me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so yeah, so your words should be few. Uh, we, our minds want to, you know, pain is irrational, even though it's such a common human, common denominator. But we want to resolve it. We want to make sense of it. We want to uh, eradicate it. Eradicated for, I yeah. think for sure. I mean, yeah. Buddhism is based on the idea of why is there suffering? Uh, Christianity has uh, uh, a crucified man. I was going to say the main Tortured story. man as yeah. its logo. Uh, uh, Islam, the, the word, uh, uh, I believe it's the word Muslim or maybe the word Islam, I forget, uh, means to submit to what is, submit mm. to you know, surrender to this, to suffering or whatever, you know, the human condition. Right. Uh, and so you have, you know, the, all the main religions are, are based on that. So, uh, I don't, I don't even remember the question. I'm sorry. I'm a little foggy. No. The coffee, hasn't, <laughs> the coffee hasn't kicked in yet, even though it's 11 o'clock. No, I think, I think that just, you know, there, what do we do when people, when we, either we see someone in pain or someone approaches yeah. us in pain and one, one of the cool um, tools I've added because I'm a fixer, right? Like I want to, right? You know, if someone comes to me with something, my mind flips to like, oh, they want me to help them fix this or solve right, this, right? right? And one of the questions I've had to add to my repertoire when someone approaches me, um, whether it's just a simple problem or if it's actual pain, is to be, um, do you want me to help give an answer or do you want me to listen? Yeah. You know, and sort of give put it put it in their court, so I know what my my role is. Yeah, and that's right? definitely legitimate. And sometimes people really do want an answer. Yeah, that you might have, and and so, and sometimes they don't. Especially most of the time, you yeah. know, <laughs> a lot of time I don't got yeah. any advice, right? But I I can listen. Yeah, I can be mindful, um, which is harder than having an answer. You know, and and, and it's from my experience, I think it's a, a lot of time more important. Yeah. Because we so. don't listen to each other. No. We we talk at each other. Yeah. Waiting. And it's like, okay, what am I going to say next? Yeah, you're loading your next torpedo of the argument or whatever and while they're <laughs> presenting their case and you're thinking about what you're going to say in response. Yeah, and even if it's not a debate. Yeah. Right? Like it's, it's almost... Normal um, stories. Well, I got a better story than that. You know, we one up one another. That's what it, I was <laughs> in the Navy. We used to call these guys. There was guys that were particularly uh, one uppers. We would call them one uppers because yeah. no matter what, you could tell any any sort of like off the wall fringe story that you could think of. They've got a better one. Ten times, you know, the experience they had was way, you know, and it, it yeah. just. Uh, they're hard to be around, and yeah. and they don't seem to be aware that they do that. And I wonder if they're if mm-hmm. a significant other in their life would tell them, "Hey, you're a one upper. You have a bad case of one uppy." See, if they would even see it. I don't know. I don't know because on the submarine we were pretty. I mean, now I can ask you: Do I do that? <laughs> I don't think so. no. We. I feel like you and I listen. I mean, do I? I feel like I. I'm a listener. Yeah, I, I don't. I, yeah, 
I mean, we do, but we also like we like if we're hanging out outside around the table, we'll do it, right? Like if we're in fun banter, yeah, yeah, mode. But I feel like when we we lock into a serious moment, right? I've I, never I, felt like you didn't listen to me. Okay, that's good to know. You know, and and I would say most people at Desert Rain, that's true. That's good. You know, I yeah. think I'm trying to think of a time where I felt like I, I wasn't heard, but I that's one of the things that has been cultivated well here, I mm. think. Yeah, that's that's something that can it's a practice, mm-hmm. I think. And and so and I and I think that's where community comes in as well when, mm-hmm. when someone's when you're suffering. Um if you can have another person if you can be in the presence of another person, when you're in pain and you're in suffering, uh, whether it's physical or emotional or both, mm-hmm. and another person can be a non-judgmental presence mm-hmm. to you, to be vulnerable, where you are safe to be vulnerable. Safe, what I mean by that is safe from their glib answers, safe from them trying to fix you, safe from their agenda where they are in a state of openness yeah. and you can and you can do that there is a healing that can take place it won't fix the problem right uh, necessarily but it but it will for that moment and that's all we have anyway it calls us to the present moment and in that moment of your pain and suffering to be witnessed uh by a, a non-judgmental loving presence of another then a, a real community can mm-hmm. develop and and that's, you know, and like I said, it's not the answer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, it's not, and anybody that sells the answer, they're charlatans anyway. And it's not so, minimizing the pain either. No. It's being like, I, well, it's like the, what, what's the yoga thing? Namaste. My yeah, light yeah. in you sees the, you know, the light within me sees the light yeah, within or you. Something. I think the actual is something like the jackass in me greets the jackass <laughs> well, was, in you. Or I was going to say in this context, it's, <laughs> it's the, the person that has suffered pain within me yeah. is, is um, giving presence to the pain you're walking through yeah. in this moment. And the, yeah, and the, I, I've said that to people. I said the, the suffering in your life has spoken to the suffering in my life. Mm. Told people that and, you know, meant it. Well, and you you gave a good example on one of the other podcasts of the woman you had met uh, in Las Cruces, and she. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She, could you retell that story? Yeah, so you know, I don't know if I've talked much about it. And it's a sensitive issue because uh, I want to protect the <laughs> right. other people. But we, you know, our daughter, we we uh, adopted her from birth in two thousand, and. Around the age of 13 or 14, her personality completely changed mm. uh, from a, a sweet uh, little girl to just very angry and mood swings. And all that to say, by the time her uh, late teens, early 20s, uh, she was diagnosed with bipolar mm-hmm. disorder and, and some other mental issues, probably set on by a traumatic experience at 13 mm. and... And hormonal changes, right? Probably uh, these things are very, and so the confusion of trying to protect her from the age of fourteen to eighteen, at least, you know, mm-hmm. uh, was incredibly painful right. for us. And and you know, there are times where she has lived homeless in a car, and uh, we didn't know where she was going to be. 
uh, night to night. Incredibly painful. The nights where the only light, I like to say it like this, the only light that you see is the blinking of your smoke alarm mm. on the ceiling and you're just wide awake. And uh, no, no, sleep is not coming in those, yeah. those particular nights. And, and there were times at the beginning of it where we were, you know, there was no diagnosis of anything and it's mm. just pain. Uh, yeah, there were days where, several days in a row, uh, where I just wanted to die, you know, mm. uh, and contemplated suicide too, uh, because the pain was just so amorphous. I could not, here was this little girl, I could fix every problem. The shoe was untied, I could fix that, right? Mm. Uh, uh, she's hungry, I could make her, you know, some uh, dino, dino chicken nuggets or whatever, you know. Some SpaghettiOs, some dino <laughs> SpaghettiOs. SpaghettiOs. <and laughs> grilled cheese Sammy yeah. and some chocolate milk. And I could solve those kinds of problems. And um, But when she began to be bullied and when uh, I couldn't solve those kinds of issues, right. when she began, uh, when she was shunned by friends and her social network and that kind of thing, I can't solve that. I tried, and I caused even more problems. Right. Uh, and so, uh, yeah. And so, yeah, so we met this woman who, very similar story. Uh, and then she said something like, that was really, she said, if my daughter, if I get a text from her in the morning and she's alive, everything else is icing on the cake. Mm. And that really spoke to me. I almost started crying in front of this stranger right there. And, uh, and uh, so... Yeah, it was a very powerful encounter to have but, someone, you know, in a similar similar situation. Right, and I, and I think that speaks to the uh, what we were just talking about of witnessing. There's something about experiencing the same or similar pain yeah. and having that that can that connection, right? Even if it was just for that moment, because right. I think it was like in a parking lot or something before you. Yeah, yeah, she'd given us a tour something. of the work that she does mm -hmm. as a social worker. And then, yeah, the, where she walked us to our car and laid that on me. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow. And, yeah, and there was a moment of community and a moment of that kind of healing. And, and, and both of us are the, – the situation with our daughters has not changed, mm -hmm. and it's ongoing, and there is no 700 Club – uh, Christianese answer. Well, if she just well, there's Jesus. If she, if you would have just read the Bible more, if you would have those kinds. Of, and and I've had to shelter myself from those kind of people. Right. Job's counselors. Because people do and try to sell that sort of absolutely they do paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's one thing. So if you're in a situation like that, in chronic physical pain, or you have a loved one that's mentally ill, which is rampant. It's mm -hmm. people don't. It's so stigmatized. No one wants to talk about this. Right. Uh, uh, you really do one thing you should do if, if you need any practical advice uh, is is find uh, is shelter yourself from people that are going to be toxic with religion or spirituality, and 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 you can find these people in every you know you know it uh, it doesn't matter the religion or the spiritual right. or path the denomination yeah. within a religion yeah right. well if you just go sit in the power centers in Sedona Arizona you know yeah. it'll cleanse you of the negative in it now. Uh, well, it might, but it's also not going to make this thing go away, right? <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. It can be both things, but the, yeah, to re, to lean into a miracle answer, yeah, can be dangerous. Or if somebody says gaslights you, says it's your fault because you had negative thoughts or negative feelings, and so you let those things in. Mm. Uh, you, you need to uh, 
if, if it's a relationship that you can cut off, you probably should cut that person off or confront them first, obviously. And, uh, but if it's not confrontable and, and they're going to double down, uh, you're going to need the emotional energy to get through your chronic pain and you can't have those kind of people uh, hanging around. You've got to, you've got to, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, trim, uh, trim the branches, uh, <laughs> trim the relationship. What's, what's the European toilet that they use? Oh, a, bidet. A bidet. You got to bidet them <laughs> off of your life. There, there you go. That's a subtle way to put it. But uh, I, and, but I also think not only that, but also the flip side of it, of like searching out whether it's support groups or yeah. um, therapists that are, uh, have worked with whatever your particular yeah. thing you're going through, professionals. Exactly. Right. I mean, not the support groups are necessarily professionals. There are support groups out there where it's all laymen, right? Um, but they've experienced yeah. whatever you're experiencing. And so there's the empathy is, is, um, is different. Yeah, there's, yeah. So if you can find a good therapist, you should. There's usually a stigma on that. Uh, usually it's, it's they're too expensive. Uh, well, yeah, and that, that's an actual, I, I don't know if that's a stigma. That's a, a, yeah, that can a reasonable critique. But a lot of therapists go on a sliding scale. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter, when she was spent her little, uh, her uh, time <laughs> in the adventures of homelessness, uh, <laughs> uh, is the one that, that got herself therapy on her own and found these resources. That's amazing. Uh, in a state of bipolar paranoia. Uh, and probably some drug use as well. And and so I think a lot of times it, it is an excuse, you know, mm. uh, because there is someone some someone out there somewhere mm-hmm. that will take a sliding scale or, uh, you know, or, you know, will help you out. And even, way. you know, I know... In North America anyway. Right, I don't and, know about the rest of the world. Right, and, 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 you know, the VA gets a pretty bad rap about certain yeah, things within the healthcare, the but but I do know there you know people that have sought metal, mental health help yeah. within the VA system, and it's been successful for them. Yeah, you know, and and um, and I think it's one of those things too. Like another excuse that I've heard is like it's like well my trauma or what I'm going through isn't that bad, so I right. I don't need therapy. No, you're that, yeah. Trauma's trauma. Well, you might need therapy, even yeah. if it's it's a six month stint, a three month stint. Even yeah. it might even be a two week. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Two meeting stint. It, yeah. Um, but to be heard from someone that has witnessed other people or that have gone through it themselves, there's something yeah. powerful in that connection. And they, and they are a lot of these people are skilled in therapies, very specific therapies. Mm. So in, I'll I'll go ahead and open up about that. If, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so we were seeing a family therapist, you know, during our daughter's high school years. And, and one thing that I discovered about myself is that uh, I was, my body, my, uh, my trauma history was connecting the, the chaos of what was going on with my daughter to the tragic, violent death of my brother 20 years before. And so... So what was happening, I noticed, so, so when things were even normal, let's say she had some friends over, uh, I noticed my heart rate would be jumping out. She'd just be eating pizza with her friends. Mm. And for some reason in my mind, not my mind, my uh, body response was that she was you know, snorting cocaine with them. 
Oh. Uh, so, so I was responding to a to a normal situation at a DEFCON five. I was, and my mind was was not, you know, I wasn't responding to it uh, uh, socially. Relation, in other words, I wasn't freaking out. I wasn't. It was you were internalizing it. It was all internal. It was mm-hmm. just my my heart rate. I could feel it, and I could feel uh, the the adrenaline chemicals uh, being released in my body. And I realized I'm going to have a heart attack. And so I I told the therapist this, and she said, "Yeah, you are." The trauma of your brother's death at at the age of uh, 22, you are responding out of that mm. event in the past to your daughter's current uh, situation. And and to be clear, there was no cocaine being snorted. No, it was they a were pizza. just eating pizza. It was a normal situation. Laughing, having a good time. <laughs> yeah. Just just to just to clear. Yeah. There, you know, you you had made up that. That the DEFCON five part of it. Yeah, my body had done it. it right, was, right. It was, That's what it I wasn't mean. rational. It wasn't. Uh, it was a PTSD response. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When you catastrophize things, mm-hmm. that's what I was doing. Uh, and it was because she had already. There were some tragic things that had already happened mm-hmm. with her. Right. Uh, uh, traumatic and tragic, you know. Uh, well, and, and the so, one. Yeah. Hopefully, I'm not speaking out of line, but the one that I remember is when she. Uh, I think it was your father and your mother had bought her a car. Oh yeah, yeah, that was later, yeah. And the color of the car, yeah, was triggering because I believe it was the same color as your brother's car that yeah. got into the accident. Same shape and color, uh, yeah, very similar model. So she sent me. So I was out of town, and so she sent me a text. I got a car, and it was looked just like my brother's car, mm. the one that he was killed in. And so yeah, so I had to. But but I had already, yeah. So I was able to. I had some some skills at that point. Okay. To recognize, right? And, and so yeah. So what this therapist had done with me uh, was a couple of sessions called EMDR, which was uh, I think it's eye motion uh, reprocessing uh, uh, something or other. Yeah. Well, if you, <laughs> you could reprocess make- trauma. Maybe walk through. Yeah, what you, it's a voodoo. What done with you. It shouldn't work rationally. It's just a ridiculous <laughs> sounding thing. But they, you know, it's it's a therapy they developed with uh, soldiers with PTSD. Mm. It's mainstream now. But they usually they make your you you choose a traumatic event, a memory of your life, and and you just simply tell the story. But while you're telling the story, they uh, are directing your eye gaze. At different places, mm. uh, and there, so and are this, you looking at like a monitor or sometimes? No, the therapist will hold up a pencil, okay, and just have you follow the pencil. Okay, she didn't do the eye thing; she did uh, these vibrating uh, like buttons in my hands okay. that were intermittently from hand to hand, just kind of going out like a phone buzz, okay. uh, just like a vibration, yeah, sensory sort of situation. Exactly. Okay, and so I revisited the the night of my brother's death. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, it's not an event that I've repressed. I talk freely about it. I was going to say, I've heard uh, you share about it multiple yeah. times pretty freely. So it's not, so it wasn't, you know, anything radical for me to tell the story or mm-hmm. revisit. It wasn't, you know, I've told the story uh, probably hundreds of times to groups, large groups and individuals. And, but for some reason, because of these vibrating things in the palms of my hand, it, I, I can't even explain it, uh, but it, it uh, I went through like half a box of Kleenex. Mm. Just the emotional weight of it was there. Uh, I was uh, when I was paying her, 
on a sliding scale. Uh, <laughs> She, I was, I was physically shaking and exhausted and, uh, where she, you know, where she had to say, uh, you know, if you, <laughs> if you're not okay, you need to call me later, you know? And I was like, yeah, I just, yeah, I'll be okay. So I get in my car and I go to the graveyard and walk around, mm. you know, and you know, it was close to his birthday and, um, and it kind of unhooked a lot of that. Interesting. With, with my daughter's situation, it helped me, helped us cope through, uh, even more difficult times, uh, you know, as, as we went through. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so that's, a, that was definitely a pain management kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so if, yeah, and it's, if you could tell your story of your pain, even your physical pain, tell the story of your, you know, when you were in your accident or when you, uh, found out you had this bizarre syndrome that none of your friends had and, mm-hmm. and it's affected your life, uh, you know those kinds of things. Very important. I think writing about it too. Yeah. If yeah, you're not, for sure. if you're not, uh, if you don't feel like verbalizing stuff is a strong skill for you, I've yeah. heard of people, you know, writing it down more yeah. than once. Or right? creative arts. You know, that's another good yeah. example. Singing right? about it, writing songs, uh, Paintings, artwork. Yeah, you know. yeah. It's very. Those are some very simple things. I think that's what my. It's one of the things my daughter has done to cope with her mental illness. So, uh, drawing mm. that kind of thing, and so yeah, yeah. And I, I, you know, sort of going back to this idea of um, pain being universal, right? Like, yeah, you just you just shared a a deeply emo- a, an emotional pain that's deep within within you. Um, two examples, right? The yeah. stuff you walk through with your brother and and. Um, the stuff you're walking through today at times and having that community around you to um, support you in the pain. But I also know, um, and hopefully, you know, we can take this out if I'm speaking out of line, but seeing other people's children that are similar ages to Anna sometimes magnifies the pain. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so I don't know if you want to share a little bit about that of, you know, having that disconnect within your community Yeah. because of that very specific situation. Yeah, we've, and we, and Marshall and I have have experienced that before. Mm. So like another... uh, Previous example would be, um, you know, we're in our twenties and we and we planted a church, right? And most of the people in the church were young people, and they're you know newly married, just starting their families off, right? And here we were uh, struggling with infertility, mm. uh, and and couldn't find a physical answer, a medical answer to it, uh, and so of course people spiritualize it. Oh, on us. God really? is telling me you're going to have a child next year. Uh, you know, and then the year. Oh, passed. they would come up to you, oh, yes, un- yes. uninvited, and share that. With Absolutely, you. they would. Yeah. Wow. And it's it's just the the shitty things Christians do uh, to each other, and spiritual people too. Right. Uh, I'm, and what they're really saying is, I'm uncomfortable with your infertility. Mm. I'm uncomfortable because you don't your life experience and reality doesn't uh, fit my worldview of how God should work in the universe. Uh, because there's a Bible verse about uh, infertile people getting pregnant, so therefore, so it's such a silliness and, and foolishness that hurts people. 
And then, yeah, and then having to go to a, a baby showers every weekend, mm. pretty much, because there's just a baby popping up every every weekend. You and, know, you, and you want to be connected to the church community. That yeah, and we were happy planting. for them. Of course, of we're course. happy for them. But there's that sting, you know, mm. there was that that internal hurt. And so, um, so yeah, so to see her, what should have been happy years, you know, uh, uh, you know, even normal years in high school, uh, we didn't get that. We didn't get to experience that. It was uh, uh, traumatic event after traumatic event and bizarre things, as those of you who have... Yeah, things that are just mental, out of your control. Yeah, when you have mentally ill people in your family, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and then seeing, yeah, our, our friends who had uh, children her age thriving and flourishing and looking like, you know, everything was just wonderful for them, but for us it wasn't working, uh, was also very painful, isolating, alienating kind of experience. Um, and so, uh, and I brought that up to the therapist at the time. Mm. So why, I asked her, why does it seem like everyone around us is flourishing and, uh, and, and they're doing so well, and my family, we're the only ones that are uh, floundering and hurting and failing at everything. Every answer that we try, every solution that we see uh, fails us. And and then she kind of gave me a kind of a smirk almost. And she said, they're all lying. <laughs> <laughs> they're just lying and you're just more honest. Their, their facade is a little bit yeah. better painted, so to speak. And that's, and that's an economic thing as well. Mm. Uh, because uh, there used to be this thing called the middle class in this country. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore. But a long time ago, boys and girls, there was this thing called the middle class. And uh, and so so people with, with means are able to cover mm. their image much better in their social uh, environments. But people without those means are unable to cover that up. And so their alcoholism or their addictions are in everyone else's face because they can't hide them anyway. They don't have the, you know, uh, resources to do that. Uh, and, and we learned that early on too in the church. We had some older, very, you know, fairly affluent people for El Paso uh, in our church. And uh, in one case, you know, the uh, uh, this, this wealthy businessman was in the hospital and so I went to go see him and his wife met me outside the door and said, no, this isn't, this isn't what we said it was. This is a cocaine addiction mm. and, his, and his stomach lining has been eaten out. Finally. You know, and it, it was, and so, you know, I'm like 29 years old. I'm like, what the hell? I had never heard of anything like, you know, yeah, except on TV, you know. And, right. Uh, uh, but this was real and in our face and they were able, they had the, the means to cover up mm. and present a lifestyle of, uh, you know, uh, the Cosby family. <laughs> we know how that turned <laughs> and, out. And that turned out well, right? The, uh, the plot twist in that yeah. story. And that's usually the way it plays out, right? The Eddie Murphys uh, are the are the ones that, you know, don't watch Raw, don't watch Delirious. Yeah, uh, is the, it Delirious? The yeah, it is. Uh, in the, the 80s. Delirious, yeah. uh, he's a terrible human being. Uh uh, watch something and read something more wholesome like Bill Cosby. Yeah. And now all these years later, decades later, you have 
Eddie Murphy saying, would you believe, <laughs> would you have believed in 1985 that I would be the father, the America's dad, literally? Because I think he has like 12 kids. Yeah, and he, and he, he avoids the spotlight. <laughs> yeah. Like he just wants to hang out with his family from <laughs> what I Bill understand. And Bill Cosby would be in prison for rape. <laughs> and, and so, uh, and that's kind of, that helped me through, you know, to mm. realize, no, they're just not. And there was resentments I had to work through because here I was being open Mm. Marshall and I being open and honest about our struggles with others, but they weren't reciprocating. Uh, but they weren't, the people in our immediate circle were not giving us the answers, so to speak, and, and mm. gaslighting us and, you know, that kind of thing. They were being as supportive as they possibly could while hiding their own struggles because yeah. they just weren't ready to be as vulnerable. Well, I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that some of the reason you... Me, you, and Marsha, I mean, obviously you guys are married, but I feel like that's how I've connected with you and Marsha is we're both willing to, like, be open about what's going on in our lives. Yeah, yeah, like, I think so. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm, I feel like I could go to you and Marsha and share anything that was going on in my life, and and hopefully it feels reciprocated for you all. Yeah, absolutely. Um in fact, you came to live here during kind of the epitome of a lot of mm. of the very difficult things, very difficult nights, and very supportive. Cool. And you were, I think you were living here the year that she was homeless mm -hmm. and living out of her car and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And by choice. At, at least for some of it, for <laughs> she sure. She still looks fondly on that. It's just well, it's some, so bizarre. Some, And this isn't, I'm not speaking on Anna, but... What there was a gentleman when I was relatively newly sober. Uh, I got sober in Phoenix. I, I think I've shared that multiple times. But there was a guy who would hang out behind the strip mall at one of the meetings we would go to. Mm. It was at the strip mall. And this guy would hang out behind it, uh, homeless. Yeah. And it was always interesting to see like the eager new people in recovery wanting to go and like we call it twelve stepping someone when you try to help them get oh, sober. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the guy would just like laugh, like he didn't want to get sober. No, he wasn't there yet. He was, he enjoyed being homeless. Like he had lived in a home. And for that season of his life, like he yeah. wanted, he was embracing his current situation. Um, and I don't, you know, I couldn't speak to where he is today, you know, or right. give you any information about that. But, but in that moment, he was, he was content with the way of life he was living. Yeah. You know, and who am I? to judge that, right. right? Like it's one thing if someone wants to not live that way, you right. know, and, and then, you know, getting them the resources or the the guidance, um, you know, so who, who knows, who knows yeah. when we look back fondly it's, on stuff, like who knows? It's a mystery, yeah. yeah. Uh, another thing that got me through that time is also cognitive therapy too. Yeah, share a little bit. So, you've, you've shared that with me yeah, before. Yeah, and mine was very sure. makeshift. It wasn't given to me by a therapist, but, right. but uh, a therapist could help people with, a, you know, mm -hmm. especially if you've had a traumatic childhood and you're getting over traumatic events in your life, cognitive therapy is a very simple uh, and can be very effective. For me, it was it was just uh, walking. So I'd go walking mm. and I would let myself experience these feelings and I would uh, cognitively experience it. So I would say, I am feeling anger right now. And then I would splice the anger out what am I feeling angry about? What specifically? Who am I angry at? 
And just to be clear, would you say these things out loud or would you just think them? No, I was in my head, yeah, okay. most of the time. I'm, you know, so picture me walking. Mm-hmm. That physical action was very important too. Right. Uh, and then and then I would go into uh, these feelings need to be acknowledged and I acknowledge these feelings. Mm. Uh, they are real, uh, but I am not ultimately these feelings. These feelings do not define who I am. They are feelings. They come and they go, uh, but they have to be acknowledged or they'll come back and burn your village down. <laughs> and, uh, and so I would just do that kind of exercise. Mm. Uh, um, I, th- I think there's, I don't know if we've ever talked about it, but there was also, and this is free online and it's very, sounds very woo-woo, new agey, but it's very simple. Mm-hmm. Her name is uh, uh, Byron Katie and she does a thing called The Work. And she has a worksheet that's that's available online as well. You know, her more expensive stuff is you know. The, you go, <laughs> She's got the premium edition and yeah, the free yeah. edition. <laughs> but the free would work, you know. And and I respect that it's free. Right. Uh, but it's a judge your neighbor worksheet. Oh, interesting. And so you start with a judgmental statement. You have to you have to word it kind of the right way. It's a little co- tricky at first mm-hmm. uh, for you to go through the cognitive process of it. But it, but you you know so it's when you're in a conflict with somebody so such and you need to make a judgment statement on them mm-hmm. so and so should do this more you know uh, so and so should stop doing this and then and then you ask a series of questions like uh, um, how does this statement make me feel or, or I think the first one is is this true about that person and uh, and most of the time you don't even know if it's true or not true you know and so let's yeah, say yeah because it's your judgment yeah so that kind of that first question is kind of a throwaway mm-hmm. because either way you're going to go to the second question unless unless you really do convince yourself okay that's not true and so then you go into all right then why am I giving myself to something that's not true and if you're able to unhook there then great I've never been able to unhook right. there. Uh, so the second question is, well, how does uh, this statement make me feel mm. that so-and-so should be doing this? And so you go through your your feelings. Uh, you know, I feel angry. I feel frustrated. I feel like walking out on this person, you know, whatever mm. it is. And, the, and then you go to the next question. Uh, if I didn't have the ability to have this thought, this judgment, how would I feel? Mm. You know, well, I would feel, you know, usually it's, I would feel liberated. I'd feel free. I'd feel a lot lighter. And you can go into the physical. I'd feel physically less sick in my stomach, uh, mm. that kind of thing. And, less uh, distracted, less yeah. whatever. And then the last one, if you're ready to today and you don't need to be ready today, uh, can you let go of this? And then you say yes or no. And then mm. if it's a no, then you go back. And then you, and then she has a switcheroo where you uh, switch the relationship around. So so-and-so should be doing this uh, you, then you say, I should be doing this. Oh, and then and you go through the process again. And you keep going through it like a wheel. Yeah. And it's a cognitive therapy. It's a, it's a, it's a common person's, if you will. Uh, it's a popular uh, cognitive therapy that doesn't cost you anything. Right. I think the whole book of Psalms in the Bible is cognitive therapy. I think prayer itself uh, can very much be that. Uh, but you see the pattern in the Psalms. God, why have you forsaken us? Mm-hmm. Why, why don't, why do the rich uh, pricks always get away with this, <laughs> you know, their shit? What, when are you gonna do something, God? You never do anything, God. Oh, but I trust you. Yeah. And then, and then, and then the Psalm will go on. But God, why do all the <laughs> right? And because yeah. those it, feelings it, resurface yeah. again, and so they engage those feelings again, honestly and openly, and they don't repress it, and they don't. 
uh, they accuse God to God's face, right? Of course. God, you don't answer your, you never answer your phone, God. You never call you know, me back, God. You don't even text me back. Uh, what is the problem? So, Do I have the wrong email, yeah. God? <laughs> and that's very healthy. It's a, it's a processing of pain. Well, and in the recovery world, one of the, there's a, a part out of the, the big book that talks about if someone, if someone is, is uh, if you're resentful towards someone, pray for them for two weeks. Yeah. Um, even if you don't want to, even if you don't believe the prayers and right. the, uh, in, not encouragement, the, the sort of the, the thing I got from it is, or not got from it, but was directed, gave some directions around is like, think of all the things you want in your life. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I list, I can list, you know, list them in my head. And they're like, okay, now the two weeks you pray for this person, pray for those things in their life. Yeah. You know, and I think it builds this bridge of empathy. Well, maybe empathy is too far of a word, but it builds this bridge to humanize them. Yeah. To it's like, oh, they're just like me. Yeah. I'm imperfect. They're imperfect. I say dumb things. They say dumb things. Yeah. Uh, I don't always keep my word. They don't always keep, you know, whatever it is that has, right. has caused this fissure between you, um, it's like, well, like give a little grace because yeah. they're, they're human. And um, and release I, the expectation that you're going to be mm, best buds and you're going mm-hmm. you're gonna, to you're gonna camp together and you're going to wrestle <laughs> yeah, on the ground yeah. together. And you're, No, you're not. You're, you're, you're not going to do that with them and well, release those expectations. And uh, Rob Bell, uh, great uh, author and podcaster, yeah. and I think retired pastor. I don't think he does any pastoring stuff anymore. No, he's smart. <laughs> he got out of the game. <laughs> but one of the ways I heard him describe, he does a re- he has a really good five series podcast about forgiveness. And yeah, one of the things right. that, that uh, struck for me, <coughs> excuse me, was he said, the importance is on the forgiveness. It's not on like what you're saying. You, you might still need to cut them out of your life. Yeah. They might be a truly toxic person. Yeah. You know, we talked about that earlier in this podcast. There might be someone that is truly toxic in your life. Right. Um, so it can both things can be true. You can forgive them and you cannot associate with them. Yeah. You know, and you can set a boundary of like, listen, we can't we can't talk anymore because yeah. of the things you've you've done towards me. And and um, you know, so forgiveness isn't this idea of of we let everyone back into our lives. Exactly. Right? It's not nec- you know, forgive and forget is uh, you know, it, it's a in some situations that's true. Right, you yeah. still you steal five dollars from me. It's like, well, I could live without that five dollars, right? But you know, you break into my house and and beat me up or yeah, assault yeah. me or something. You know, it's like, well, you know, I don't know if you just forgive and forget. Maybe you forgive and you get a restraining yeah. order. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that you can forget them. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully, right? Um, so one thing I do want to sort of uh, so you've given a lot of really great examples of like things that you've been able to walk through for your emotional pain, right? Uh, and some yeah. of the connections you've made. And um, so I don't know if it's necessarily a compare and contrast. That that might not be the right uh, paradigm for it, but sort of comparing your emotional pain and your physical pain, right? We It's yeah, been yeah. well documented on, the, on other episodes, the heart surgery you had last year, the yeah. multiple heart surgeries, right? Open heart surgery and then getting the the pacemaker put in, um, 10 years prior to that, uh, your kidney shutting down and, yeah, and yeah. being, um, hours from death, I guess would yeah. be a good way to put it, yeah. if not minutes. And, um, 
and recovering through that in a very physically, I mean, that was also emotionally painful, but right. um, definitely physically painful too. And, and may, you know, just sort of what, what are some of the different aspects that you've encountered between emotional pain and physical pain and, and how you've yeah. uh, sort of coped with them? Because um, before, when we were talking about this episode off mic, we we're talking about how many people have, because of physical pain, well, emotional pain too, but in the conversation we were having, have been um, become addicted to opioids, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so they had a knee surgery five years ago, and they've they've never not refilled their uh, oh, what's what's the the painkiller, whatever yeah. painkiller they might right. be on, and and you know, and it's five years later, their knee is healed, right? Yeah, but they're still um, they've become addicted and to, and they're these. physically addicted, mm-hmm. yeah. So. Um, so we want to avoid that, right? Like ideally people don't yeah. get addicted to opioids because they do play a, an important role in surgery and recovery. Yeah, they can, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so I guess sort of the just, you know, what what are the differences you've noticed with the deep emotional pain you've you've experienced and the deep uh physical pain? Yeah, I yeah, I think there's the similarity I guess in my case would be the times when I've been in extreme physical pain uh, it's not the pain itself, it's the resistance of the pain, your physical response to that physical pain uh, that can that can cause bigger problems, cause it can pain can end up begetting pain. Mm. I, I, I think this is true physically in a lot of times, at right. least in my case. Uh, so I, I think there's a saying in Buddhism, for example, uh, it's not the first arrow. That you get hit with that kills you. It's your. It's it's the second. It's your response to the oh, second arrow is your response okay. to it from you know, mm-hmm. freaking out, ripping it out of you, uh, you know, and and uh, and so. So like so when I was going septic, for example, uh, I noticed something that helped me. So it was, the pain was all enveloping all over my body. Right, mm. so my, all my organs were shutting down. So from head to toe, you were just in. Yeah, pain. unfortunately, my brain was not shut down, so I was very aware <laughs> of what was happening. Yeah, cognizant. Uh, and yeah, and it was extreme pain, and for me anyway. Mm. And and it just seemed like if I kept, there was this weird. It's not rational, but it, there was this sense that if I just kept my uh, foot or my feet, it was usually one foot. Just keep it moving. Mm. You know, like when people are nervous and they mm. and they move their foot back and forth. Uh, I had this feeling that the pain was flowing through me. I wasn't resisting it anymore, but oh. it was flowing through me. And by moving my foot, it was, I, I can almost see it uh, like shaking water off. Okay. It wasn't decreasing the pain. Mm-hmm. It was changing my response to the pain that was already there. Um, so almost as this pain was a, was a river flowing through you. Yeah. And your foot so was, instead of was damming it up, it moving. Right. Uh, you know, damming it up with a, a an emotional response, freaking out. Uh, but yeah, there was this flow of of energy coming out of my foot, mm. and, and and so since then, you know, you don't just walk away from going septic, right? Uh, <laughs> and so you know, I had chronic illness, chronic pain uh, for the you know since then for the ten years. Um, so I would go into these. I I, I don't know what the there was no 
medical terminology, but there are times where my lymph nodes would get overwhelmed. And so my body would oh, respond wow. like it's going septic. That's what was happening. So right. I called it a lymphatic meltdown. And so I'd have to, and cellulitis would set in in my legs. So I'd have to just sit for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same thing I noticed. So over the next 10 years, when I was in that lymphatic episode, if, if I concentrated on just my foot, uh, just kind of moving it while lying in bed, it would mm-hmm. the, the pain would get into a rhythm, to a flow, and would I'd have this sense that it was coming out of my, my foot. Uh, and this last time when I was in sciatic pain, which was even was, more, was un- that was like a, was an electric, sir, electric bolt running through my body. And there was one night, I don't know if I mentioned it on that last podcast, uh, I was in dead sleep, so at one in the morning, and I, I woke up. I was, you know how when you get hit in the eye and you see that electric, mm-hmm. I saw that electric bolt, and it was flickering in my sciatic in the in the hip, my right hip. And this was when you were already in the hospital. Yeah, I was already in the hospital. Yeah. I was in dead sleep, and this thing just bam hit like a like a thunderbolt, like wow. ACDC would say. Uh, <laughs> I was thunderstruck, <laughs> and. And involuntary screamed out in a pain. Wow. In the hospital. I mean, I couldn't control it. Tears coming out of my eyes. The pain was just so extreme. The poor nurse, uh, you know, comes running in. And so immediately she shot me with morphine mm. in the in the IV. Uh, she gave me uh, the one that you mentioned. Uh, what is it? Uh, the Oxycontin. Yeah. No, fentanyl. That's what it was. The one oh, that's wow. killing everyone. Yeah, fentanyl, a yeah, pill that's... form. And then a Tylenol 3. All at the same time. All at the same time. And the pain did not subside at all until about 5 in the morning. So about four hours yes. later. Yes. Wow. So, so, I, so I learned that chemicals don't really help that well, mm. for me anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was another time where they, they did a fasciotomy on my leg, and when they were unpacking the gauze from the open gaping wound. It's, it's, a, it's where they try to keep a wound in mm-hmm. your body. This was in my leg. They want to keep it open for three months to let it heal uh, from the inside out. And so they were intentionally keeping this large wound in my leg open. And when they were unpacking the gauze after the surgery, the pain was... And, they, and so they literally shot morphine directly into my heart. I had a tube for right. medications and it didn't do anything at all. And so I, so I realized, yeah, a lot of times these things don't work anyway. Uh, and I'm not saying for someone that it did work for, that you're lying or anything like that. Right. You know, there's people Everyone's there different. That, yeah, that, that those things have worked yeah. for them in a pain, numbing. For way. me, the, those, for that heavy pain, those heavy drugs uh, were not very, the Oxycontin makes me very sick to my stomach. And I'd rather be in physical pain than mm. throwing up right. and feeling dizzy. Uh, so for me, a simple thing like Tylenol, uh, uh, Tylenol three or just regular Tylenol work just as well, you know? So again, I'm back to doing, just letting it flow through me like a rhythm. Mm. Um, and then this last time I was in a MRI machine and I, and I had to be still for two hours and it was the same thing. I was in extreme sciatic pain. Uh, wearing a mask, so it felt like 100 degrees inside the MRI. They had given me the wrong drug, which caused a thyroid storm. So I'm sweating like you wouldn't believe and hot, and my heart rate's up. This is the day before I, it caused a heart attack in the hospital. And 
and I'm in this MRI machine and they're like, you got to be very still. And so again, it was in my foot. Mm. It was this weird sensation that if I kept my foot like I was pushing a gas pedal Mm -hmm. in that, I could see that the, it was in my mind's eye and my imagination, but it was a sense that the electric bolt of pain was kind of trapped in my foot and just Mm -hmm. flickering there and, uh, and they were amazed that I was able to be still for two hours. I was amazed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, so, so being still, uh, again, the, the contemplative practice of being still is, a, is an effective pain management. Being mindful, uh, not being so afraid of the pain too. Because mm. your body can only take so much pain. There's a threshold for everyone. And right. when you hit the limit, you hit the limit and that's it. You know, you're, you're there and... It's it's going to be okay. It's not going to to be forever, you know, kind of thing. That's that's for me, and I'm not putting that on anyone else who has chronic illness and chronic pain. Uh, you know, there there aren't any simple answers to that. So, well, and I, I think it just goes back to this idea, and maybe we haven't said it explicitly on this episode, but I know we've said it on other episodes. Is you have to you have to kind of be out there. Um, whether it's spiritual growth, whether it's what we're talking about today with physical or emotional pain, mm-hmm. um, trying to build community, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's an ongoing topic. Um, but you have to find out what works for you. Yeah. Because um, just because something works for the people around you or the people you're seeing, uh, and it for some reason it doesn't align or connect with you, that doesn't make you wrong. It doesn't make yeah. you a bad person. Um we're each individual is different. Exactly. And so you you really got to be mindful of paying attention what does yeah. and doesn't work for you. But there's also some responsibility of like you got to do some of the inner work as well. Yeah, you do. To discover who you are as an individual. Yeah. Um, because that I don't want to say it gets beaten out of us. That's I think that's being a little dramatic. But in school, we're very much encouraged to conform. Yeah. So sometimes the outliers or the quote unquote right, right. weird kids get uh, extra punishment or shame put onto them yeah, or whatever yeah. you know whatever things might might occur to you know like, well you need to act like the other kids right um, yeah you know and maybe in second grade that's a good thing I don't know I've never I've never yeah. been in, in a teaching environment but as adults kind of being able to come back to well who am I yeah. What is important to me? Um, and encouraging that in, in in our friends around us. And you're going to lose friends. Yeah, yeah, you as, are. As people get to know themselves and as I get to know myself, things ebb and flow, people change, what what we believe or don't believe yeah. changes. And um, and doesn't, that it still hurts, right, to lose friends. Right. It doesn't get easier. Rejection is not easy. Rejection is never easy, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't get easier, but you can get through it. Yeah. It doesn't kill you. It doesn't, you know, and a lot of, and physical pain can affect your personality as well. You know, I grew up asthmatic. Uh, you know, I was the kid with the inhaler. <laughs> and those asthmatics out there, you know what I'm talking about. When you have to have that inhaler by you at all times, they didn't have preventative okay. uh, asthma drugs right. when I was a kid. You, I'm not preventative. They didn't have, uh, what's, what's the word? Uh, they had the preventative drugs for an asthma attack, but not the sustaining kind of drugs mm. to keep you from having an asthma attack. That right, makes okay. sense. Yeah. And so when Advair came along, the purple disc, uh, my life was changed from that. 
uh, because my life revolved around having this inhaler mm. on me or close by at all times. And, and it meant getting sick a lot when the pollen was in the air. And so at the, you know, at, from age three, all through my childhood, uh, my poor parents had to sit up with me mm. late at night to get over the croup or get over an asthma attack. And so I watched a lot of late night TV and grew up with, uh, you know, Saturday Night Live at the age of four, <laughs> right. uh, Johnny Carson, uh, David Letterman, and, and, you know, the late night stuff that mm. probably wasn't suitable for children. Uh, but that changed my personality, right? Mm. And, and comedy became a very uh, central thing, a grounding thing for my life, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, and it, music. Holds true, it holds true today. Yeah, right. exactly. Comedy is is a sustaining thing. Mm. Uh, it's a pain management thing. Mm. Uh, music, the same thing. Uh, there was a song when my daughter was in high school and going through all these crazy things. And I'm not saying she's, it's still ongoing, you know, it's just, it's not, I'm not legally responsible anymore uh, to, to keep her, you know, safe. So to mm -hmm. speak. I can't anyway. And so, but there was a song uh, that we discovered probably from the internet uh, Eric Clapton and I think it was Pavarotti, the opera singer. Really? Holy Mother. Interesting. And Clapton wrote the song. Um, he woke up in a, in a hotel room surrounded by empty beer cans and drug paraphernalia from the haze of a mm. hangover. And he wrote this song, Holy Mother. It's a cry out to God as mother. Uh, you know, it's an amazing song, and and my daughter latched onto it as well. Mm. So anytime we were driving together, that she'd say, "Put on the Holy Mother song," you know, and and that song got us through that time. Uh, and so there's music out there that that could get you through, uh, you know, of course, in movies and you know uh, that kind of thing. But music and comedy for me, yeah, and it, and if yeah, and it forged my personality. Comedy for me too, for yeah. sure. Yeah, and then empathetic friends. I had a friend. Uh, a close friend in elementary school. We drifted after high school, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we I uh, spent the night at his house. You know, probably fourth grade, something like that. And we're in the back, in the tent, in the backyard, kind of thing. And and I had an asthma attack, and I had lost my inhaler. Oh wow! And just a miserable night of having it. You know, just sitting there with asthma. And he walked with me to look for my inhaler. Then when the sun came up, you know, mm. we walked, you know, all over the place, retracing our our steps through the neighborhood, uh, looking for that inhaler, you know, which we never found, you know. Right. And so I had to practice stillness again. I had to go home. My mom had taught me to do this, to visualize a, a peaceful place mm. uh, and, and calm my mind down, to calm my breathing down so that I could naturally get over the, the asthma. Because there wasn't a, you know... You can only take so much of the, right. the puff or you're going to die, right? right? Your heart's going to give has, out. has adverse effects. <laughs> yeah, you, and there are times it just much. doesn't work. Yeah, so you asthmatics out there, you feel my pain. You know, know what I'm talking about. They uh, That Eric Clapton song, we, we used to make fun of my grandfather for, uh, he was a, I don't know if he was classically trained, but he, he, he taught himself or something and, and loved opera music. Wow. And so we would make fun of him for listening to Pavarotti. So I'm interested to go listen to this Eric Clapton song. Yeah, the yeah, it. the live. It's a live version. Interesting. The original recording isn't as great. It uh -huh. doesn't have that powerful passion and crying out yeah. to God as mother. 
Uh, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, we did it. All right. Another uh, hour worth of pain for you. Another hour worth of pain. Thank you. (laughs) Hopefully you're not in pain as you listen to this, but if we are, we still, we appreciate you making it this far. And uh, yeah, you know, I think just to sort of recap, you know, if you are in any kind of emotional or physical pain um, and you haven't reached out for any kind of resources, um, look up, look online and see what you, you can find. Yeah. Support groups, therapy, um, doctors whatever you know whatever empathetic friends even yeah you know yeah. If even just reaching out to someone that you know cares about you and um because a lot of a lot of times i know when i'm going through pain i don't i i avoid talking about it right but, but when i do talk about it there's a there's a healing exactly um so uh yeah we 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 are with you on this universal thing called life and this universal thing that uh we encounter called pain so yeah. Uh, thank you again for listening. Uh, drcrpod.com is you can find other episodes. Um, our two series, uh, Road to Desert Rain and Dispatches from the Verge are both there. Uh, if you're interested in reading uh, prayers and poems and or just things about Desert Rain community in general, you can go to uh, theruined.com. Uh, thank you to uh, Monk Drums. That's what you hear in the background right now. As part of our outro, uh, thank you, Jacob Nedia. And uh, thank you all for listening and uh, spreading the word for us. Much love. Good night.